Special report. Sometimes I like to say something a bit controversial because it usually means that I get an email from one of my favorite people, Al Sacchetti. And that is exactly what happened after the recent discussion about the new AAP fever guidelines. Al contacted me and said, hey, I'm not sure I want to give up my LPs just yet. Let's have a Smackdown. Smackdown. So, in true WWE fashion, tonight, in one corner, we have... Al, Rocky in the ER, Sacchetti. And in the other corner, we have... Jeff, heavyweight, Sidon. Do we get to kind of run in the middle here and, you know, push each other around and shout obscenities at each other before we start? <laughs> no, you just get to introduce yourself. Oh, damn it. All right. Okay, fine. You're going down. You are going down big time if I ever figure out how to push you down. At any rate, I'm Al Sacchetti. I am the Director of Clinical Services at Virtual Lady Lourdes Hospital in beautiful downtown Camden, New Jersey. Al, I really wish you would put that spinal needle down. I'm Jeff Seiden. I am the Medical Director for Pediatric Emergency Medicine at the Chop at Virtua Pediatric Emergency Department in Voorhees, New Jersey. All right, guys, I want a good, clean fight. Nah, who am I kidding? That's no fun at all. You just go for it. Just smack down. Smack down. Okay, first question. Let's talk about that 22 to 28-day-old. Is there even a reasonable enough chance that this kid is going to have meningitis that it's worth talking about the LP in this very narrow group of kids? Why in God's name did they come up with a seven-day window? You're going to go eight days to 21 days. Just stick the other seven days on it and do eight days to 28 days. You're going to wind up with people asking patients what hour of the day their kid was born on so they can figure out whether they are 22 days or they're 21 days and 59 minutes. It's going to be insane to pick such a narrow window. The answer to the first thing is, why in hell's name did you pick such a a narrow window to go with? Well, come on, Al. I think we can answer that question in just one word, actually. It's called data. Other people call it evidence. Interestingly, you have no problem with an arbitrary cutoff of 56 days or 60 days or maybe back when you were training, even 90 days. But those of us who are practicing in the 21st century prefer to use some data. And based on the data, there is a significant difference between the third week of life and the fourth week of life. In all honesty, can you tell me that when you look at somebody in their third week of life and somebody in their third week of life plus one day, that you feel that there's a huge difference in terms of what kind of a workup you're going to do on them? You could say the same thing between a 56-day-old and a 57-day-old, and we do make these distinctions all the time. It turns out when you do make those distinctions in the literature, there's a different rate of bacteremia, a significantly different rate of bacteremia when you look at those in the second and third week of life compared to those in the fourth week of life. Unfortunately, we're stuck with having to make some arbitrary rules. We already do it already, so I'm not exactly sure why you're so opposed to doing it just with a little bit of a finer tooth comb. And how do you guys feel about using the inflammatory markers to determine who needs an LP in this age group? If you tell me that, oh, it's a 98% chance that if you get all these other inflammatory markers, you can rule out meningitis, I'm going to tell you, if I put a needle in the kid's back, I'm going to have a 100% chance. This idea of, oh yeah, we are going to do a bunch of lab tests as opposed to examining a child 
and doing a full workup, including probably the easiest test to do on the child, which is a lumbar puncture, I'm going to say, eh, I'm not buying it. Well, look, Alec, if we followed your logic out, then every single patient who comes into the ED should have a needle in their back. How else are we going to know that they don't have meningitis? The fact is, no one is telling you to do a different exam on any of these children. No one is telling you that the procalcitonin is different in those things. What's different is your pretest probability, because the epidemiology is different depending on age. We can't rely on physical examination really in any of these children in the guideline. That's the whole point. These are all well-appearing children. This is not about the sick child that comes in who you know is sick. You're obviously going to do everything. You're going to treat empirically. This is for the well-appearing child up to, in this case, 60 days. And you're trying to differentiate who do we need to worry more about and who don't we need to worry about. And the fact is that over the past five or six years, we've already started to erode away some of the rules that were made 30 years ago that were based on a completely different epidemiology. It was based on different pretest probabilities at the time. It stands to reason that as we've evolved, not only with different epidemiology, different disease incidences, but also different testing, we're going to have to change the rules. Unfortunately, we need to be flexible. We need to change the way we practice medicine based on new evidence that arises. We do it all the time when new evidence presents itself, as is the case with the large PCARN study that's about to be published that some of these guidelines were based on, some of the older PCARN studies that have already been published, and some other data, it stands to reason that we're going to continue to narrow down the group of infants that we need to do such an extensive workup on. And believe me, I agree with you. I don't think a lumbar puncture is all that big a deal. But the fact is that it is an invasive test. It tends to lead to unnecessary antibiotics because not every lumbar puncture is diagnostic. There are a lot of traumatic taps. There are a lot of attempts at lumbar puncture that don't yield any cerebral spinal fluid. And you're sort of left with incomplete data from which you need to take action. That action is typically hospitalization, empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics, and Lord knows that being in the hospital for anybody is not a very safe place to be, no less for the most vulnerable of our infants. I don't understand how you say, I don't want to do a test that can give me the definitive answer whether someone has meningitis or not, because I might not be good at the test. That's like you know, saying, I'm going to leave you on transcutaneous pacemakers because I'm not comfortable putting a transvenous pacemaker in you. What I find very interesting about this is when I look at what's required, we're going to get all these inflammatory markers, which are going to be a surrogate for maybe a child may have meningitis, but none of them come close to 100%. What's interesting about that is these are all the tests that the doctor doesn't have to do. The only test in this entire article that you have to put your hands on the patient and do the procedure is the LP, and that's the one that's dropped off. Are you suggesting that the impetus behind these guidelines is to reduce the workload on pediatricians and pediatric emergency providers? Come on. It's not to reduce the workload. It's to avoid doing it. I was talking to Richie Cantor about two years ago. He said they now have pediatric residents graduating who have never done an LP. The other thing that's interesting, Jeff, is in none of these publications did they ever put a community-based emergency physician or pediatric emergency physician on the panel. 100% of the time, these are academic university-based clinicians making the decisions. And the statistics come out wonderful. But when you've got the kid in front of you, I don't know whether I want statistics that'll tell me, yeah, I can get this down to less than a 2% risk, when I know that I can get it down to a 0% risk if I do the LP. And in terms of you know non-diagnostic and bloody taps and whatnot, I think if you do these things on a routine basis, you don't get that many of them. We've looked back at our indeterminate taps 
in kids in this age group a couple of years ago, and it was less than 2% where they had a tap that you couldn't interpret. I don't think that's a reason not to do it because you might wind up with an uninterpretable tap. Just want to point out the new guidelines, which again, I'm not going to tell you that I agree with every single component of them, but at no point in that 22 to 28 day range, is there an arm of that algorithm that says, do not do the LP. In fact, it reports from the very beginning that you are perfectly able to do the LP in anyone. If you don't do the LP, it just simply affects the disposition options that are available to you. No patient in the 22 to 28 day old range who does not get an LP will be going home. They will all be at least admitted to the hospital, plus or minus empiric antibiotics. Just to go back, I'm not at all saying that that's the reason not to do it. The ultimate reason not to do LPs on all of these children is because their risk is so low that the downside of both the invasive testing, the anxiety that it produces in the family, the antibiotics that it ends up causing you to order, the hospitalizations that result from it are bad for the child. This is about the child. This isn't about the provider. This is about the infant. All right, back to your corners, boys. But realistically, what you were talking about seems like it could be extrapolated to the 29 to 60 day olds is the same carnage and blood that was just shed in the wrestling ring here applicable to that age group, or is it a little bit different? As aggressive as I am with wanting the LPs done in the 8 to 28-day-old, when I look at the criteria for the 29 to 60-day-old group, I think one of the things is that's a duration of time where the children change clinically to the point where I think a lot of people feel much more comfortable being able to do an exam on them. So when I look at the criteria and the criteria for the 29 to 60 day old is get a urinalysis, get a CBC and get the inflammatory markers and the inflammatory markers being procalcitonin, CRP and absolute neutrophil count. A lot of people don't have procalcitonin. If I'm going to follow that protocol, our procalcitonin is a send out. So the kid has to sit in the ED for a couple of days. Here's the question though, Jeff, and I'll throw this back to you. Do you believe that you need those inflammatory markers to determine how comfortable you are sending a child home who is in that age group, 29 to 60 days? If I'm sending a patient home typically in this age range, I'm doing it without giving them any empiric antibiotics to cover them while they're at home. And so, yes, it does make a difference. I'd like to drive the risk of their having a serious bacterial infection down as close to zero as possible. And in order to do that, I need a combination of a physical exam, which is good, but by no means perfect. And there is plenty of literature to support that things like the Yale observation score, which is a proxy for a well-appearing infant, are not sufficient to rule out serious bacterial infection. They're good, but about a 96% negative predictive value in this age range. And so I'd like to have some auxiliary information. And I don't know why you're so resistant to extra data that can drive your risk even closer to zero to make you feel more comfortable. On the one hand, you want an LP to definitively rule out meningitis in some kids, but in others, you don't want to do anything to have a more definitive test. And so why not just get some more information? You're already sticking them for a blood culture. Why not get some inflammatory markers and see what they come up with? Because the data will tell us that if those inflammatory markers are elevated, then their risk is farther from zero than if they're negative. I flipped my argument and said I'd like to be aggressive with the one group and not as aggressive with the other. You just flipped it back around the other way. You're now arguing that you want to be as careful as possible not to miss anything serious. So you're going to get the inflammatory markers. I will take that same argument back down to the other group we were arguing about. If you're going to argue you want to be as careful as possible and not miss any of these kids, so you want all these inflammatory markers, then you should do all those inflammatory markers and the LP in the younger group. My argument on the 29 to 60 day old is 
you are really crossing into a threshold where you don't need any additional tests. I think once you get into that 56-day-old, I mean, that's a two-month-old, and I don't know that you need all these tests to do that. Absolutely left out of that, with the exception of the original PCARN study, was a clinical assessment by an experienced clinician as to whether or not the child was sick or not. General office-based pediatricians, they see these kids all the time and do no diagnostic studies on them. And the kids are doing well, which goes to your original contention that these serious bacterial infections and face to bacterial infections are pretty rare across the board. You know, we're just trying to get it down to zero. So I would argue 29 to 60 day old, you know, at the 30 day old, you're right. I'm probably getting a, a whole lot of inflammatory markers and I'm probably going to err on the side of doing the LP. But on the 56 day old, I'm probably going to err on the side of saying, you know what, I've got a good handle on this. I think I can make a clinical decision. And I want to take umbrage with one of your points, which is that none of these articles take into account a clinical exam, which is completely untrue. All of them, all of them require that the child has an exam and that they're well-appearing. I always question when they say, oh, you know, the child's well-appearing. There's had to be something amiss for the mom to bring them in. They don't just say, you know, I was changing the diaper and just for the hell of it, I took their temperature and oh my God, it was high. And that's why they brought them in. There's some cues the mom's getting that the child's not well. We are in agreement much as I hate to say it, uh, on the um, the 29 to 60 day old. So Eileen, we're, we're letting you down there. This is not going to be much of a bloodbath in, in that age group. We, we agree that there's a transition point somewhere in there where we can stop doing all these tests. It just varies by person to person. So if the bloodbath is over on this topic, let's move on to something else because I want a bloodbath. Bloodbath. And that question is, we're having this argument about a lumbar puncture, which implies that there is some risk with a lumbar puncture. Now, I know every family that I have proposed an LP2 has a paralyzed relative somewhere on account of it. What is the real risk of a lumbar puncture? What is it that we're trying so hard to avoid with these guidelines? You bring a really good point up. And I think the one thing you alluded to, which is really key, is you have patients who really vehemently opposed to it. Where I practice, when I go in the room and say, we're going to do blood work, get some urine, and we're going to do a spinal tap, the family goes, okay, and the mom helps hold the kid. So I, I don't have that fight. I think the real risks of it are almost non-existent. I think you run a higher risk of giving a female patient a urinary tract infection, trying to find where the hell God hid the urethra on a two-week-old than you do doing an LP and causing any harm with that. As much as it pains me to agree with you on some of this stuff, I don't think a lumbar puncture is an inherently risky procedure. Certainly paralysis or spinal cord injury, I think those risks are extraordinarily low. When I explain to families what the risk of it is, I say, number one, it causes some anxiety in you. Sometimes we need to introduce a needle more than once in order to get an adequate sample. And sometimes there's a little bit of bruising around the area. Beyond that, I think the other risks are really quite negligible. Smackdown, even though they agreed. All right, before we close, any tips you guys have? You are LP experts. And if this procedure goes by the wayside, that is going to be a valuable skill that you will no longer be using. But as long as we are still using it in select children, what tips do you guys have for navigating this either procedurally or interpersonally with the parents? If they're young, I give them the sucrose solution. And if they're a little bit older, a little bit of fentanyl, even a little bit older than that, I'll give them a little bit of IM ketamine. It is a very easy procedure in a cooperative kid. But if you've got that squirming, squiggly kid, it just makes life difficult. The other thing is you got to numb them up. 
I think there's a lot of benefit in drawing pictures that indicate where the spinal cord ends and where you're actually introducing a needle. I think that goes a long way in terms of allaying the fears of the family. I often tell them that I'm a lot more comfortable, particularly in these neonates, doing a lumbar puncture than I am getting an IV. I'm much more confident that I'll get the spinal fluid on my first attempt than I will the IV. You know, I agree with Al on the numbing. I think in the neonatal population, some topical Elemax typically does the trick. I don't think you usually need to infiltrate with local lidocaine, but certainly in the older infants and older children, absolutely. When it comes to the neonates, I think the only piece of advice that I usually give to trainees is making sure that all of your axes are aligned. It's very tricky when you have somebody holding and scrunching a little baby. They usually overdo it on the scrunching, as Al alluded to, making sure that their hips are actually stacked on one another, peeking under that sterile dressing to make sure that the gluteal cleft looks in the right location before you start sticking the needle. And then once you introduce the needle, get that stylet out of there as soon as you're through the skin, because these are very superficial sticks typically. And the biggest mistake people make is they go too far waiting to feel that pop, which you're just not going to feel most of the time in the neonates. So as soon as I'm through the skin, the stylet comes out. I advance the needle until I get spinal fluid. Damn it, I hate when I agree with you. Mark this date down. Well, thank you guys both so much. You may be out of spinal needles after sticking it to each other, but the rest of us aren't. So who won this fight? Email me, text me, let me know if you're going with Al, Rocky, and the ER Sacchetti, or Jeff, heavyweight Sidon. Who won? Let me know. Smackdown.